imagine a society that didn't call out gender, but had a language where you had to call out someone's hair color and believed that your hair color was said something important about what kind of person you were and what kind of things you were going to be good at and what role in society you were going to play. So I'm sitting here with Anne Lecky. Anne has written the amazing Imperial Rock series, starting with Ancillary Justice. So first of all, I just want to say thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. When we get into the world, what's the first thing that strikes us? That's, that's an interesting question. Uh, the world is very, very large, so it depends on where you step into it. If you enter at, say, uh, one of the provincial palaces inside the Raj, Everything seems very Rajchai. Uh, everything seems very elegant and calm and formal. Uh, the, the, and everything seems very civilized. Uh, but that is sort of a deception uh, because the universe is much bigger than that. But, of course, the Rajchai believe that they're the center of civilization. They are civilization. Uh, and they can prove it by pointing to everything around them. Uh, and so if, if you're stepping into Rajchai space, it can look immediately as though everything belongs to this one single, very formal, very elegant, very civilized culture. And Rajcha is a culture. Is it a species or is it multiple species or is it like, is it even human? The Rajai are human. Uh, they're all human. Uh, you have to be human to be Rajai. Uh, if you're not human, you can't be Rajai. Uh, and so uh, Rajai is a culture. Uh, it, it, some Rajai will tell you that Rajai is an ethnicity and everybody who's really Rajai is related to this original population. But many of the people in the most elevated houses uh, who think of themselves as purely Rajai were provincial families back in the day. Uh, and if you wanted to trace their DNA back to, you would find that actually they didn't come from the original Raj. But you don't say that when you're in there. <laughs> When you're talking to them, right? Because they will be very upset. And and the, are the Rajshais, as it seems for us, or maybe it is even is, are there descendants of current humanity? Oh, absolutely. They are absolutely descendants of current humanity. So this is like, how far are we in, even into the future? Uh, at least 10,000 years, possibly oh. more. So it's humanity has, um, quote unquote, conquered space. And everybody we meet... Uh, not everybody, but plenty of those we meet are humans. And then yes. the, the Rajshais, but they're also provinces. So obviously humanity expanded first, and then the Rajshai culture appeared. That's correct, yes. And are there, are there other species? There are other species. Um, there are, now I have to count, there aren't many. Um, there are the Presker, uh, who are extraordinarily frightening and powerful, um, and kind of di very difficult to communicate with. Uh, and uh, before the treaty, which uh, forms some of the background to the events in the book, uh, the Presker might come across human populations or human ship or station and just kind of take them apart. Nobody knows why exactly. They just would do that. Um, there are also the Gek, uh, who live on a world that's largely ocean, though not entirely ocean. Uh, and they're an aquatic species, uh, but 
perfect, just perfectly intelligent. Uh, and there are the Rur, um, who I don't think we ever see in the books. Um, those are the the three intelligent alien species that the that humanity knows about. And what we and we look at these because now we're we looked at the uh, the Radshai, we looked at the like provincial human humans, so to say, and then these three different alien species. Uh, like, is there a hierarchy? Uh, within Raj space, um, within Raj space, hierarchy is very strong and overt. Uh, there are there is Anander, Anander me and I, who uh, rules the entire Raj supposedly by herself. Uh, although, um, of course, she has multiple bodies, multiple copies of herself, all connected to to rule over this huge space. Um, Underneath and under are the highest, the most aristocratic houses, which are sort of houses are uh, sort of extended families. Um, the culture doesn't. Uh, I let's see. Let me think of the easiest, the clearest way to say this. The culture doesn't think of uh, marriage the way that we think of it as being the important relationship. So there are people who are, uh, you know, monogamous lovers for a very long period of time and who have children together. But that's not how forming households works, ideally. Um, but rot space is so large that there are places where that is a way that people form households. Uh, but the, the top the top layer of uh, aristocrats are these sort of large extended families, very wealthy, uh, very influential. They generally take over most of the highest civil service posts, uh, which are supposedly only available for doing well on exams. But we all know that that money and education helps you do well on exams, right? Uh, and so they consider themselves better than the sort of layer beneath them. And these various layers go down further until you get to the folks who, for instance, don't have large extended houses or whose large extended houses are uh, clients of houses above them. Uh, and the clientage is a really important relationship. It, we, they think of it more, uh, it's more significant than, uh, than something like being lovers or being co-parents would be. Uh, and so you owe your, your loyalty and service to a house or a person who has granted you clientage, and then they support you in other things and give you gifts and help you get along. Uh, for someone who has no patron, uh, there are, very few avenues available. You have uh, nobody to to pay bribes for you, or to help pay for your children's education, or you know do various things keep you you know living in the manner to which you're accustomed. If you don't have any other way of getting that, uh, and so so the hierarchy is sort of baked into the social structure there. It's such a strong uh, structure that it almost feels anti-democratic. Absolutely. Well, uh, so. I'm not sure how much this is the kind of thing that you're interested in, but I actually stole the clientage thing from ancient Rome. Yeah, I was going to say it looks, it feels very Roman. Yeah, it is. It is very definitely very Roman. There's a lot that I stole from ancient Rome for for the Raj, and it's definitely anti-democratic. Uh, for most of the folks, especially uh, in the upper layers of society, the whole idea of a democracy where everybody or even some largest percentage of everybody got to actually vote on things would be shockingly weird and just seem goofy. It would just seem very silly and, and not workable. There are there multiple parties. Are there like multiple agents in this world or is it very much like one huge pyramid? 
Of course, we have the different alien species, but just if we look just within the Rudshay. So that is a complicated question because it kind of depends on what angle you're looking from. So from one angle, it looks like it's just a pyramid and everybody is loyal to Anandami and I ultimately. But in fact, within that pyramid, different people are jockeying for different positions and have different things that they're that they're they're aiming at. Uh, and those aren't always the things that Anandami and I want. Uh, and obviously people are going to get along better if they're sort of helping along with the goals of whoever's got power over them. But that doesn't necessarily mean they have the same goals. Uh, and so they don't have the obvious multiple party situation uh, that you would have in a culture where, you know, people were running for elections or banding together to get things done. But there's still going to be underneath it almost unacknowledged. There are going to be those sort of competing factions for various things. Uh, it's just nobody is going to acknowledge that those are different, that, that those are actually happening. Hmm. No, it is a, it's a really fascinating world in those kind of layers. And also, spirituality and religion, is is that a strong thing? Or is, some kind of, is it more virtual signaling? Because there are a lot of deities. There are. And um, it is very strong, uh, except with the folks who it's not strong with. So you do have people in uh, Rajai society who really don't care about or believe in any gods, who really don't care about religion. But... Religion is a strong, uh, a strong sort of center of how you're supposed to be a citizen. So this is another thing I stole from ancient Rome. Um, so religion is, is less about believing the right thing or being a certain kind of person or following particular rules, more about uh, doing the things you're supposed to do. So showing up at the temple and making an offering, saying the right prayers at the right time, uh, particularly in public. Uh, and of course there are, because there always have been, these are human beings and there always have been and always will be people who have a really close personal spiritual relationship with, uh, with the gods and with the practices. Uh, and there are some institutions for that. There are essentially monasteries where one can go and, and uh, be an ascetic or spend a lot of time in prayer. But the major practice of the religion is these are the rituals that we have to perform uh, to support the state, to support Anandrami and I, to show that we're civilized. Um, so it's it's kind of a combination. And I kind of see that as not being terribly different from most societies except in emphasis. So uh, in the U.S., for instance, uh, Christianity, uh, various forms of Christianity, I should say, are the do is the dominant religion. And Christianity has a really strong focus on what you believe and what your, your spiritual relationship is with God. But you're expected, if, if you have that belief, you perform it in particular ways. And how much of that is virtue signaling and how much of it is an expression of your spirituality? Um, so I think that's all. And you've got your people who are like, oh, well, to be a, an American, you need to be Christian if you're not Christian. Because I've heard people say things like this. You can't really be an American if you're not Christian. How can you? And I'm thinking this is really very ironic because there was a time when the Romans were like, you can't really be a loyal Roman citizen if you don't pour a libation to the genius of the emperor. Uh, and Christians were like, oh, no, 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 I don't have to be have to do that, I can still be a good citizen. And here you are doing the same thing. Um, but at any rate, uh, I, there is space for 
uh, that sort of personal, spiritual, religious relationship. And quite a few people do have that. But the public performance of the religion is very, very important to, uh, to the political structure. Yeah, it does feel very performative in that sense. What are the are there guiding principles in the religion that we see see? I mean, for example, hands are obviously taboo. Is that from religious reasons? It is. It is for religious reasons, although uh, it's an old enough taboo that many Rajai have never stopped to think about what the reasons are. Uh, it ultimately comes from uh, taboos about ritual purity, about touching particular things, and the. So when I say the Raj uh, and Raj space, uh, that encompasses a huge amount, the whole, I guess I'll call it an empire, even though technically Anander isn't really an emperor in that, not technically. Uh, but the core of Raj space is a Dyson sphere. Um, and most Rajai, because the Raj space is so huge, most Rajai have never actually been inside that Dyson sphere. Uh, and... The Dyson sphere itself is a barrier, is a ritual barrier. If you're impure, you can't cross into the Dyson sphere. It was meant to be an area that was entirely ritually pure and holy. Um, and so uh, if you were going to leave that Dyson sphere, you had to perform all these rituals and uh, uh, purifications and you know bathing and stuff before you could go back in. Uh, and so one of the ways to make that less troublesome was to do things like wear gloves so that you could say, no, I never have touched these particular impure things. I always have my gloves on. Um, but over time, that becomes people who are Rajai wear gloves. Uh, and after a while, it's just, well, of course you cover your hands. Hands are dirty. Just the same way that we would say, well, of course you wear pants before you go out. You don't, you don't go outside with no pants on. That would be terrible, you know. Mm. So it does ultimately have a uh, Re, are religious reasons behind it, but most Rajai uh, outside the Dyson sphere uh, don't think of it in those terms. They just think of it in terms of being decent. If we look at the economy and value, is this a post-scarcity world, or what is valuable and how does the economy work? It's That's an interesting question. Uh, it's largely post-scarcity. Uh, every Rajai citizen is guaranteed food and clothing and housing and a certain amount of medical care. Uh, and so there's no trouble affording that. But what that means is things that are luxuries are things that aren't easy to get. That's often the case. So, for instance, uh, gloves that are hand-woven, hand-embroidered, hand-stitched would be way more valuable than a glove that has been extruded you know, 3D printed by something. Uh, 3D printed clothes are super easy to get, but if you really want to show off your status, you wear clothes that are hand-sewn. Uh, similarly, tea, you can, there's all kinds of mass-produced, tea is extraordinarily important to the Rajai. Uh, you can get mass-produced machine-picked tea, but if you really want to show off your status, you drink hand-picked small estate tea, uh, which is more valuable because it's rare and because you could make human beings spend their days picking that tea. Yeah, I think I've never seen a world where most of the drama is about what China the tea is served in. <laughs> yeah, that that part is a lot of fun. But, you know, when you when you are part of a society where those things are how you show your status, where 
because you have antique hand painted china rather than a you know gray plastic extruded bowl that you're eating your food out of, uh, it becomes extremely important. And as you're jockeying for power and status, being able to show those things off and know which set of dishes is going to show you off better becomes extremely important. It does feel in a sense like a very stable world. I mean, there's definitely like political instability and jockeying for power, as you said, but it feels that it is in a sense one world. There's one view on time and order and structure and planning, or is there? It seems like that, doesn't it? But that's not really the case. Uh, part of the Rajai project of spreading civilization involves annexing a world and then saying, see, we've converted everybody to civilization. But all of those other things don't just go away. And all of those other things are sort of bubbling under the surface. So... Uh, so if you look from the outside, it looks like everybody does things the same way. But then if you go and spend time with a family, say, uh, that that is in a, a, a provincial station or down on a planet, uh, and you can see all the little things that aren't exactly Rajchai. But of course, if you ask the family and you're like, well, where did you? They go, oh, no, we're Rajchai. That's a Rajchai practice. But in fact, it's not. It comes from before the annexation, for instance. There's lot, And there's probably... Uh, things like that that actually came out of the Dyson sphere, but everybody's like, oh, it's all the same, but it's not. Um, whenever you get a territory that that's large, that thing is going to happen. Uh, in the U.S., once again, that's actually super common in the U.S. Oh, we're all Americans, we're all the same. You know, I'm in Missouri, you drive one state south, and the kinds of food people eat are different. Uh, if drive one state south and ask for a glass of iced tea, and it's going to come very differently than if I ask for iced tea here in St. Louis. Uh, and that's the same country. And we're like, oh, yeah, we're all Americans. But in fact, and we all share the same culture. And in some ways we do. But in a lot of ways, we also don't. And Rajai space is just much, much huger than the U.S. Um, so there are lots of ways that they talk a good game about seeming very similar, and it looks very similar from the outside, but there are all kinds of different subcultures, different ways of using the language, different ways of cooking food, different ways of organizing families that superficially look similar, but then when you look closer, you realize they're not the same. It's very important to show that we're all the same, even if we're not. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Is gender one of those things? Because in the Rajai world, uh, the only gender pronoun is her. Is that just like Persian, like Farsi, where it just happens to be the case? Or is it so that it is a very intrinsic part of the culture to show equality? That's a really interesting question. I'll be honest, I don't know the answer to that one. Um, it was... Speaking from a, a, the writer process of world building rather than the anthropologist process of talking about it, um, I did that because I thought it would be cool, um, because I thought it would be neat to write a story where gender was not an issue. Uh, and I decided after a, a long process, I decided the way to do that would just be to use feminine pronouns for everyone. Um and uh, and I enjoyed the effect as a result of that. But I did not actually stop to think about what in the in the history of the Rach might have brought that about. Do you think that people in the world do? I guess they see gender. My go to uh, simile for this, my metaphor is uh, they see it the way we see hair color. For instance, um, obviously, people have different colors of hair uh, and obviously we can see it. But. Uh, at least in English, I don't know of any languages that call out hair color when you talk about 
someone. Uh, in English, you have to call out a gender when you speak about a person. Um, but we don't have to call out a hair color. Uh, and so imagine a society that didn't call out gender, but had a language where you had to call out someone's hair color and believed that your hair color was said something important about what kind of person you were and what kind of things you were going to be good at and what role in society you were going to play. And then discovering that we didn't even care about that, that we had trouble remembering what what uh, term of address to use for a redhead or what to say about even worse. What if we had a society that said there are two hair colors, you can have brown hair or blonde hair. It's amazing. Right. And then you'd say, but what about the redheads? Oh, that's no. Some people are born with red hair, but you know, we med medically correct that because that's obviously something wrong, you know, and people who were like, how come you can't tell that that person is blonde? And you're like, well, they have a hat on. You're like, well, you don't need to see their hair to know they're blonde, right? Uh, and so I think of the Rajai as being like that society only with gender, where they're like, what do you mean I'm supposed to know what their gender is? Their pants are on. And even that doesn't tell you really, because it doesn't. Uh, you know, even if we were walking around with no pants, you wouldn't always have the right information. And uh, but in if I were to walk out on the street right now and say to somebody, how do you know somebody is uh, should be addressed as he or how do you know they should be addressed by she? They're like, well, it's just obvious. What's wrong with you? I totally agree with you. Anna. And it's fascinating because I guess when you started writing the books, this was more of a controversial topic, whereas now it is, I mean, I know in every part of the world, this is not the same, but now people actually do tell other people what gender pronoun they want to be addressed with. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's something I'm glad that's happening. Uh, it doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, I can go to a science fiction convention and see a number of people who are wearing badges uh, with their pronouns, which is nice. Or you can ask. But there are places I could go if I went down the street and knocked on the door of somebody three or four doors down. They would be really confused at why I was asking them about their pronouns. Yeah. The future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Exactly. Exactly. And another thing which in this world, which is not like hair color, though, it's not that, I mean, we people are blind for this. It is born versus constructed. Because it is a very important thing. Like, we, there are very, it feels like there are at least three strata here where you can have been born, you're human, you can have been purely constructed, like you're an artificial intelligence or robot, and then you can be an ancillary, and then you're, a, you, you're born, but you have been taken over in some kind of servitude or somehow uh, you're now run by a computer. Can you walk me through these levels and what it means? So uh, by Rajai lights, by, by the way they see the world, um, if you've been altered too much, if you have too much machinery in you, you're not human anymore. And so um, while various kinds of implants are common uh, in various parts of space, not just Rajai space, uh, and there are parts of space where people have been altered extremely extremely far uh, with lots of wiring and uh, implants that do various things. Uh, the Rajai don't consider those people to be human. Uh, Rajai will have maybe a couple of optical implants, uh, maybe an auditory implant for communication, uh, but they won't have much beyond that. Uh, whereas other cultures will use, will use implants much more extensively. Um, and the problem with ancillaries is they're full of tech. They're full of implants and machinery, uh, enough that they're just not human anymore. 
And they're, to some extent, especially by the places that have been annexed, especially essentially by the, the provincial uh, peoples, uh, thought of as being corpses. And corpses are impure. It is a society very much, as you have mentioned already, very much focused on purity and, mm -hmm. and cleanness. But it's also interesting because these different, they have the very different rights. They have none. They have no rights whatsoever. No, and then, then so then you have, the ancillaries have no rights, but and they're kind of looked down upon because they used to be human and now they're impure. And then you have the completely constructed ones like ship AIs. Mm -hmm. And there's another relationship to those, right? They're not looked down upon, they're... They're not looked down upon. Uh, they're not impure, um, but they're not citizens. They they don't really have rights. They don't have. I mean, they're they're mostly treated well because they are expensive equipment, very expensive and very valuable equipment. You wouldn't uh, you wouldn't take your beautiful sports car and you know toss it in the river or whatever. You're going to treat it well because it's a good machine that's doing stuff for you. Uh, but you also wouldn't uh, ask your car's opinion about uh, whether to move or, you know, what you should do with your life uh, because your car is not a person. Um, and ships are kind of thought of that way. So they're, they're in a weird in-between where you can talk to them and be fond of them and uh, have a relationship with them, but they're not really considered to be significant people. When you see that they were almost seen like servants or in, a, in like a much older society where, as you said, they have no rights, they're not seen as people, but they do know everything, every part of your wish. They know exactly the way you want your tea and they, they can help out, but you would never ask them to vote. Right, exactly. And it's very much uh, one of the things, very few people these days have servants, um, but one of the weird things about having servants is how intimate they are. Uh, they have no no actual power. They have no rights. They're, if they're lucky, they're making a little bit of money from working for you. Um, they're all up in your business. They hear everything you do. They're going through your dirty laundry to wash it. They know everything. Um, and yet they don't get treated very well. And ships are kind of like that for the folks who serve on them. And then there's this weird in-between, or not weird in-between, sorry, but you have ancillaries on warships. Yes, and, and ancillaries are doing, uh, well, they're sort of the hands and feet of the ships, uh, but they're a lot more personal uh, because they have these these human bodies that uh, the soldiers on the ships can interact with. Uh, and it, it's got to be a weird thing to look at a human face and have this conversation uh, with the ship and be thinking that's not really a person. That must be a really weird place to be. Hmm. But are these, I mean, this is the extension of the ship, are they, quote-unquote, robots, droids, constructed, or are they born and taken over? They're in between. They're born human beings who have been taken over. And, but, but, and they've been taken over not, not by themselves, not as you said it. They're not, they're not like punks that have pierced themselves too much to get to the stage where they're not considered human anymore. Oh, no. Oh, no. In fact, they are... Uh, they are they're taken from the populations of worlds that the Raj has annexed. And so when uh, the Rajai invade a planet or a station or a system, they take a certain percentage of people and deep freeze them to use for ancillaries later on. And this is actually something that in the already early parts of the books is shifting. The views on this is shifting. 
Yes. Uh, Mini Radchai never thought twice about it. It was just obviously the thing that you did. Beside, those people were troublemakers and they were not civilized and everybody would be much better off uh, once they've been converted to civilization. Uh, but as time goes on, uh, and partly this may be because uh, as time goes on, more of the population descend directly from people who have been annexed, who might well have uh, ancestors, relatives, distant relatives in the holds of ships waiting to be turned into ancillaries. Uh, the attitude towards doing that has become uh, much less positive. People are like, wait a minute, are we really actually doing this? Um, and of course, because the society is very much very hierarchical, very, uh, very much not a democracy, People being uncomfortable with it isn't necessarily going to change it, but that's going to be part of what's going on. Uh, people become less comfortable with it. Military officers become less comfortable with it. Uh, eventually, Anandra Me and I is going to stop and think twice about it. Um, and so it's going to filter through society. But that has actually begun to happen by the beginning of the books. Hmm. And Anandra Me and I, the, the crown of the hierarchy, is Anandra Minai, as you said, Anandra has multiple bodies. Minai is originally a born person. Is it a mind that has been uploaded? Is it Anandra Minai clone? How, how did this come about? So how it came about is a really long story uh, that occasionally people ask me, and I'm, I'm holding that card to my chest. Mm. <laughs> um, but she is a, per, a born human being uh, from inside the Dyson Sphere. Um, who had her own reasons for going completely megalomaniac with, you know, taking over the universe. Um, her, she's, she's clones. So she is thousands and thousands of clones of herself, all hooked up so that in theory, she can know what every bit of herself is thinking. But of course, when you've got Part of you is in one space station at one end of Roch space, and part of you is in another space station at the other end of Roch space. Um, it's going to take weeks for a thought to get from one part of your body to another one. Uh, but she is a, a multi-bodied, uh, a cloned multi-bodied being at this point. And is it so that actually does one, is it a centralized entity where one body, quote, brain, quote, silicon or something, run all the bodies? Or is it so that there is no center? Is it just nodes? Is it completely this? And every single Anandraminai is its own and communicates with every single other uh, Anandraminai? Or is it so there's one main character, like main hub, in the, and the other ones are spokes? There is not a hub uh, because, uh, in fact, that would be kind of dangerous, right? If there was a hub, losing that hub would mean the end of Anandami and I's grip on Rajai space. Uh, so, in fact, there is not one main hub. So it is a, exactly, it's a mesh of uh, sort of independent nodes that sync each other. And then, of course, sometimes get slightly out of sync, as you said. But the, the idea is to have them all having the same. Yes. Their being in constant communication is meant to kind of keep them all... Uh, working in sync. If we zoom out of the world uh, and like look at today, uh, Earth 2019, do you feel like looking at the Raj world, do you think that there are things that we can learn from? Hmm, that's, that's an interesting question. Probably, but I'm not sure 100% exactly what they would be. Um, 
it's not exactly a place that uh, I would want the world to come to. Like, I don't hope that the future holds the Rajai, <laughs> to be 100% honest. That would be a pretty – some... well, okay, in some ways it would be an awesome place to live. Uh, to always have your food and shelter and medical care guaranteed uh, would be wonderful. To have uh, abundant, nutritious, and, and inexpensive food that uh, anybody could have, that would be amazing. Um the the level of tech would be really cool. Like who doesn't want uh, implants where you can, you know, talk to somebody distantly without having to hold a phone or, uh, you know, you can play music without having to have headphones in or whatever. That would be super awesome. Artificial intelligence would be super awesome. But I don't think I would want uh, the sort of uh, panopticon aspect, right, where artificial intelligences see everything you do. Uh, where the government can just up and execute you or brainwash you for whatever, you know, um, I really, that's not good. Um, I guess, uh, and with the books, I wasn't necessarily trying to say anything about what we should be doing in the real world, but I guess it's hard not to be talking about the real world even when I don't think I'm writing about it, if that makes sense. It's just hard for me to see exactly what it was I was trying to say. What scares me of the world is, funnily enough, not the panopticon, not the AI, not the transparency, because maybe it's the engineer in me that just feels that they are much more just and and, and, and run the world in a much better way. What scares me are, are humans. Uh, and this extremely hierarchical world, which feels very unfair and very unjust. What do you feel that what scares you in this world? Um, it The injustice definitely does. Uh, the, the way that the AIs, I'm not afraid in our future that AIs will destroy humanity, but I don't necessarily think that AIs will rule us more justly um, because they'll be made by people. Uh, and, I agree with you that it's the humans that are scary. Um, and in fact, at the very beginning of the first book, I have a character say that, um, that, that she's not afraid of the ancillaries. She's not afraid of the ships. She's afraid of the human soldiers um, because they're much more erratic and much more dangerous um, or much more, maybe not obviously dangerous, but much more likely to be malicious. Uh, and, one of the problems with the kind of totalitarian uh, government where one person is in charge of everything, where uh, that top layer basically gets to do gets people to do whatever they want them to do is what do you do when that turns malicious? What do you do when you're the small person who's getting trampled on and you have no recourse? Uh, and so those are the kinds of things that are really scary. And I feel like ancillaries are... Uh, sort of a, an extreme example of that because they're the very bottom. They're the people who have just been grabbed and had their humanity torn from them uh, and been forced to participate in more of the thing that destroyed them. Uh, and there's nothing they can do about it. No, I agree. I agree. It, uh, I feel that's an, um, such an interesting worldview, what is actually scary. Do you feel that there are values or morales in this world that are quote-unquote, higher and more developed than in our world? I wouldn't say more developed, and partly because I guess I don't believe in the idea of more developed morals. I think people have different systems, uh, but I don't think any of them are necessarily more primitive or more advanced. Um, that said, 
at least on the surface, the, the Rodchai idea about justice and propriety and benefit is actually not a bad one on the surface. When you say, I want every action to be just, if my just if I'm taking just actions, then they are by default proper. So if I'm proper, I'm just. And if I'm proper and just, then benefit will flow to the world around me from my justice and from my propriety. Uh, and that's not a bad looking at the surface. You're like, well, okay, that makes sense. That's kind of a good set of values. But of course, like all human things, it's really easy to twist into your own advantage to say, well, you're not behaving by this set of rules of politeness, therefore you're unjust and not beneficial, uh, you know, or, well, it benefits me, so it must be just, or, you know, all these various things. But uh, on an abstract level, that's actually not a bad set of things to say, to say that if I'm behaving the way I should, then it will be just and beneficial for everyone around me. Yeah, it is. It does feel it's always this problem with alignment, I feel like. If we lived in a world where everybody's striving for the same thing, that sounds like a beautiful thing. And it sounds a lot better than a world where we're all the, all the arrows are pointing in different ways. That might be more interesting culturally. It feels a lot more inefficient. But sadly, I think that that's what we see in this world where all the arrows point in the same direction. It's not a very pretty world. No, it is not a very pretty world at all. Do you feel that people have sacrificed anything in their view if you look at individual because now the culture of course has been this very aligned way do you think that people have sacrificed anything or do things that are irrational on individual basis that's hmm that's interesting um maybe but it would be hard to say because they would be different things depending on where in Raj space they were and what their position was so um quite a lot of people will have sacrificed their image of themselves and what uh, we might say the the importance of their individuality in order to strive for the good of their patrons or to strive for the good of their household. Um, and the, the, the people, for instance, who they take the exam and they go into the military, they'll never see their, their families for decades, if ever again. Uh, but their their service is going to be beneficial to their families. And that's a sort of a thing that at least uh, in the U.S. and probably in a lot of Europe that I've visited, most people wouldn't do that. Uh, you wouldn't think that was an appropriate thing to do. But in Raj space, if you were to say, no, I want to go be an artist, people would be like, well, what is wrong with you? Obviously, the exam said you should be a soldier and your family needs you to go be a soldier and have a great career. What do you mean you want to go be an artist? And of course, if you're super wealthy, you might have that leeway. You might be able to say, no, I'm going to be an artist and they'll send somebody else. But if your family is not so well off and you suddenly find yourself with a chance to go into this career that could help your family, but you'd really rather go cook, you might not have very many choices. You might have to up and go enter the military, even though you really don't want to do that. Um, and I think that's a thing that I know that I would think of as a sacrifice, but I don't know how much the folks who are living in societies like that think of it as a sacrifice and how much they think of it as just a thing that happens because you need to support your family. Yeah, it feels like a world where, again, it's very Orwellian. Like, language have changed, beliefs have changed, and everybody thinks they're being happy, but we don't really know if they perceive their, their limited choices. Yeah, well, I think the real world is kind of like that in a lot of ways, because it's really easy to look at 
um, another culture and see the surface of it and say, oh, they must all be miserable. Or if this person says they're happy, they can't possibly be because I wouldn't be happy. So they must be fooling themselves. But maybe they're saying that about me, right? How can she possibly be happy living like that? She can't. Um, but I feel like I'm perfectly fine. And so uh, I tend to, when I see somebody say something like that, well, obviously this must come at some terrible psychological cost. They can't be happy. And I think, I don't know, maybe I want to investigate that further. Yeah, I mean, obviously, most of the things people do, uh, if you think about how much hard work it is, it is an extraordinary sacrifice, but we all tend to do it, right? Dependent of what our values are. If it's writing literature, or if it's working hard at a job or something else, we all sacrifice things. And it's very hard to see from the outside that it is a sacrifice. Oh, absolutely. Well, and there are things uh, someone pointed out. There are, when you look at a society in the U.S., as an example of this, where you've got lots of people uh, dying of preventable medical conditions because they can't access health care, because they can't afford it, people uh, who could get medical help but not, uh, people who have died because the teeth are rotting in their mouth and the infection goes systemic, um, then you say to somebody, well, look at how can we as a society let this happen? And it becomes clear, although they wouldn't say it this way, uh, that the deaths of those people are an acceptable sacrifice for the system that we have already for the people who are benefiting. Uh, those sacrifices are perfectly acceptable because if they weren't acceptable, people would be in the streets. Like, how, how come we're not doing this? Um, and yet we can look at some other society and say, oh, how come those women have to cover their heads? That's really horrible. How can they be so awful? So I think every society has those things. <laughs> 